0: Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Stories Season 4. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Today we're talking about Season 4, Episode 1, The Freshman. In particular, we'll talk about a whole new world for Buffy, the character and the show, The Antagonist. Is it Vampire Sunday or that whole new world? The lack of metaphor in The Freshman and so much foreshadowing for the entire season. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. The Freshman aired the first time on October 5th, 1999. It was both written and directed by Joss Whedon. We start, as always, with an opening conflict. Buffy and Willow are in the graveyard waiting for a vampire to rise. So at first, it feels very much like previous seasons. Buffy and Willow are talking about college. Buffy hasn't yet signed up for classes, and they are talking through her options. This calls back for me to the end of graduation day part two where Buffy says, if someone could just wake me up when it's time to go to college. And I feel like in a way that's what happened here because we'll find out Buffy didn't really get organized in advance of school starting. She didn't pick her classes and so forth. Willow suggests introduction to the modern novel. Buffy is a little doubtful. She likes books, but she doesn't want to take on too much. And she says, do they have introduction to the modern blurb? Willow spots a short story course. But it conflicts with intro to psych. And Willow says Buffy can't drop that. It counts as a science. They're taking it together. And Professor Walsh is world renowned. And we get some wonderful dialogue I love. Buffy says, how do you get to be renowned? I mean, like, do you have to be noun first? And Willow responds, yes. First, there's the painful nouning process. They're both excited about a class on pop culture. Buffy says, Oh, you get to watch movies for credit. Isn't college great? And she comments, She can't believe she missed that in the catalog. And Willow says, She did wait till the last minute. And Buffy says, Sorry, miss, I chose my major in play group. So nice use of a small amount of conflict between our two friends to get some backstory. And they have their backs to the grave. They're sitting on the ground. So they don't notice when the vampire rises because they're so absorbed in talking about college. And there's some irony because Buffy says she can't let college take the edge off her slaying. And the vampire rises. He sees the weapons and stakes in a pile. And he leaves while Buffy is saying this. And Buffy wonders if he's ever going to wake up. And we cut to the credits. This scene in a lot of ways sets the stage for the entire episode. I feel like throughout it, I am waiting for the vampires, the monsters. Instead, we are getting Buffy dealing with college life for so much of the episode. I I think after this watch that that was very purposeful, but I am still not sure that it really works well. At three minutes, 22 seconds in, We are back from the credits. It's a sunny day on a crowded campus, and Buffy is alone. She's looking around, looking lost. There are lots of different groups of students protesting. People hand out flyers. Someone's yelling instructions through a megaphone about folders, and Buffy has the wrong color and clearly is not sure where she should be. We're now about 4 minutes 39 seconds in, so that all that's happened in that minute or so and Buffy tries to ask someone where one of the halls is and she has no luck. This is around 10% through the episode and normally in any story here we see the inciting incident or the story spark that gets the main plot rolling. And I don't see any one particular moment here. It's, it's really these combined moments of Buffy seeming lost. Some of my questions about what the main plot is in this story also come from that it is not easy to identify the antagonist. Our antagonist has one job to push against the protagonist to oppose the protagonist, And it's a while before I feel like I know who or what the antagonist is in this episode. Buffy sees Willow, and Willow's really excited about this first day of college, which kind of makes Buffy feel worse because she is feeling lost. And also, Willow chides her a bit about not getting there early to get her ID. They compare Willow got five flyers for protests, Buffy only got jello shots. And Willow says, I didn't get jello shots. I'll trade you for a take back the night. There is some poking fun here at all the outrage. I think Willow says something about I already feel outraged about all these uh, causes. I do wonder about the significance of juxtaposing jello shots flyers with Take Back the Night because takebackthenight.org If you go there, we'll talk about how it was formed to stand against sexual violence, especially violence against women. And many campuses do have Take Back the Night walks and protests. And there is, I have to think there is significance in that being put against the Jell-O shots flyer because uh, when the kid gives it to Buffy, he says, Jell-O shots free for freshmen girls which is a big issue on campus, pushing alcohol on freshman girls or giving alcohol to freshman girls to help make them less aware. There are all sorts of issues with all of this and I find it interesting that those two things are put literally in the same sentence. Willow and Buffy run into Oz and Willow says, it's my on-campus boyfriend. Buffy jokes that she forgot to pick hers up, and the line's probably really long for that too. At first, Buffy thinks Oz is sympathetic to all these new faces and things, and he does try to be, But a guy he knows stops by, asks about Oz's band playing, Oz directs someone to one of the halls, and he tells Buffy the band played on campus a lot. Also, from last year, we know Oz was left back a year, so he knows people who are now on campus as sophomores. Buffy says, too bad Giles can't be the librarian here. And Willow comments that she thinks Giles is enjoying being a gentleman of leisure, which Buffy says isn't that British slang for being unemployed. She's clearly, though, looking forward to going to the library as something that'll be familiar, except when they reach the top of the stairs, it is this huge open space It looks very modern and, uh, to me, sterile compared to the high school library. But clearly, it has a lot more resources. Willow loves it. She tells Buffy she didn't want to say it to Giles, but other than the occult books, Sunnydale's library was pretty limited. Buffy, however, clearly not thrilled with this library also being so different. And I am with both of them here because Willow comments on how she likes college because in high school she felt like the getting of knowledge was frowned upon. I can identify with that. I went to a grade school and a high school that did not have any advanced placement classes. Uh, The options were limited if you wanted to kind of go beyond the basics. In algebra in eighth grade, I had to go to school early. I want to say at like 7 o'clock just to take algebra. And then it was considered a privilege to do it. And if we misbehaved, we'd be sent back to the regular class. So learning more was, was almost like a favor the school was doing us. So I can see how excited Willow is to be in this different environment. At the same time, when it comes to libraries, I love wooden tables and shelves and card catalogs. Uh, part of how I chose the law school I went to, one of the deciding things for me was the school I went to had uh, they had certainly modern equipment and so forth but the library looked so classic with wood tables and lots of rows of shelves and little cubby holes where you could work and the other one was very modern looking and to me seemed very cold. Willow and Buffy next go to the bookstore. Buffy has a basket of books and at eight minutes, 33 seconds in, she says, I can't wait till mom gets the bill for these books. I hope it's a funny aneurysm. They are looking still for their intro to psychology books and they see them literally on the top of a bookcase, not even on shelves, but just stacked on the top. Buffy tries to get them and knocks them down and they hit this nice looking blonde guy on the head. Buffy apologizes profusely. He helps her gather the books and asks if they're taking intro to psych or they just want him dead. Buffy says, "Uh uh-huh. I mean, the first one. Willow is very excited when Riley introduces himself and says he's the TA for the class. They talk about Professor Walsh, her operant conditioning theories and work, and Buffy is pretty much left out of that conversation. Riley is impressed with Willow. He doesn't meet many freshmen who know that much about psychology, but Willow says it's fascinating. And Buffy chimes in, yeah, you know, because everyone's got a brain. After Riley walks on with Willow, she then says to herself, or almost everyone. We are at 10 minutes, 18 seconds in. Buffy goes to her dorm room, meets her roommate, Kathy, who is very perky. She's unpacking with her stuff on one bed, and she asks, did Buffy want the one on the right side? Buffy says, yes, but if Kathy wants that one, and Kathy says, no, no, I just wanted to make sure that's what you wanted. So we get this hint that Kathy, uh, a little bit passive aggressive here, though she is also seeming very friendly. And she apologizes in a way for being so hyper and says uh, she's just excited. This year will be super fun. We switch to nighttime. Buffy has trouble sleeping as Kathy snores and laughs in her sleep. We're approaching the one-quarter point through the episode, usually around here we see the first major plot twist. It should come from outside the protagonist in a well-structured story, spin the plot in a new direction, and raise the stakes. As with the uh, story Spark, it's a little bit hard to pick out the one quarter turn here. And on first watch, I was still waiting for our usual monster or vampire plot to begin, but it doesn't. Instead, we go to Buffy's first classes, and I think that is the plot turn that Buffy has her first day. It's overwhelming. Now we are switching to academics. In a way, that does raise the stakes because that is why Buffy is here And also, she probably went to bed thinking, okay, rough first day tomorrow will be better. So at 11 minutes 42 seconds in, She is in a large auditorium-style classroom with uh, the slanted or graded seating, and the professor is pontificating at the front of the room. He is saying the point of the class is not to look down on popular culture or pick it apart or to watch videos for credit. So this is that class that Buffy and Willow were talking about. And Buffy whispers to the person next to her to ask if they know if the class is Is full. And the professor, in the midst of his lecture, says that two people are talking. One is him and one is a blonde girl, which I think is a reference to the show's mission statement about the blonde girl who turns around and fights the monsters. And he tells Buffy to stand up. He wants to know what's so important to interrupt his lecture. She stands and she stammers and she says she just wanted to know if the class was open. The professor is a total jerk and bully, tells her if her name is on the sheet, she's in the class, is her name on the sheet? And she responds that she was told that she could sign up that day and he repeats if her name's not on the list she's wasting everyone's time she's sucking energy from everyone in the room they came here to learn and he yells at her to get out Buffy inches past the other students she's apologizing she says I didn't mean to suck at first the class is laughing at the professor's uh, jeers but they do fall silent probably not too thrilled with this guy either but this does make the point. Buffy is out of place. Everyone else remains seated. They belong there. I get why we have this scene. It doesn't quite ring true to me. The co-host of Still Pretty, Lonnie Diane Rich, often talks about uh, that reality is no defense for fiction. So if something is not believable, the fact that it really happened or it's that way in real life doesn't save your scene or your story. But I think that reality can undercut a scene. And while in real life, I certainly have experienced uh, bosses like this, too many professors like this, people who have a little bit of power and they just like making other people feel small or feel bad because they need that to feel good. All the same, on the first day, this feels overdone to me. A lot of people transfer into and out of classes in the beginning. So it could be I just have had uh, had too good of an experience in college or law school. While fiction should make things larger than life, your protagonist should face uh, sort of big obstacles. Usually in Buffy, we do that through the metaphor, the demons, the vampires, the horror that's what makes it bigger and amps it up rather than kind of taking a situation that doesn't quite feel realistic and and just making it bigger I would love to hear if you have a different reaction to this in the hallway Buffy runs into Riley she asks how his head is and he doesn't remember her until she reminds him of it and he says, oh, Willow's friend, but he doesn't remember Buffy's name. I am not sure if I buy that he doesn't remember Buffy at all until she reminds him. How often does a girl knock books off a shelf onto his head? The Willow's friend part Again, I get why we're saying this. This is the first time Buffy is in this world where she isn't the center of her friend group, where she is known as Willow's friend. But it it didn't ring true to me that that Riley didn't remember her at all. There's a very nice moment in class, and before it starts, she goes back to Riley and says she's just wondering if Professor Walsh is planning on yelling at her and kicking her out of the class. And Riley gives her a really nice smile and says, uh, it's not in the lesson plan. When Willow asks her, Buffy says she decided not to take pop culture. It seemed dull. I love this moment, too. It is a single line that tells us so much about how Buffy's feeling and what what's going on, because she is not sharing with her best friend what really happened. Now we meet Professor Walsh, and this instance of Buffy feeling overwhelmed, I I do buy. Professor Walsh starts out with a semi-joke. She introduces herself and says those who fall in her good graces will get to know her as Maggie, but the others will see her as what her TAs call her and think she doesn't know the evil bitch monster of death. Some of the students laugh but her manner is so intense and given Buffy's previous experience she looks troubled and her expression gets more worried as Professor Walsh continues make no mistake I run a hard class I assign a lot of work I talk fast and I expect you to keep up if you're looking to coast I suggest geology 101 that's where the football players are. This fits with uh, Buffy feeling overwhelmed. She has said she doesn't want to take on too much because of her slaying. And clearly, this class is going to be intense. At 18 minutes, 10 seconds in, we still have not seen a monster or vampire. Initially, I thought that was a flaw in the episode. As I mentioned, it's hard to tell who or what the antagonist is, But now I think it is purposeful because monsters and vampires, Buffy knows what to do. She knows where to go. She knows how to handle that. College, she does not. So I feel like if Buffy got to slay a vampire early in this episode, maybe her first night on campus, that would have given her her footing and she would have felt ready to handle condescending professors and challenging classes but that hasn't happened we see another shift in the show as well because we're not seeing what I think of as our old friends and buffy's too we have not seen giles we haven't seen joyce we haven't seen xander Cordelia is gone and not even mentioned, unlike the other three, and so it feels like this shift in the tone of the show, in the way the show will go forward, because it feels less about the Scoobies facing things together with Giles and Joyce as guides, especially since we haven't seen a villain for them to face. There's some point earlier where I think Willow said it's a whole new world, and yes, it it's supposed to be it's college we're not in high school it's a different show but it makes it one of my less favorite episodes in the next scene Buffy walking at night runs into literally another student Eddie he says did you uh, lose your way and they joke about both feeling lost they introduce themselves Buffy knows where they are now. Eddie has a map. So together, they figure it out. And they empathize about the academics. Uh, He is an intro to psych also. And he says Professor Walsh is intense. Lots of the courses here are tough. And during the conversation, he mentions his favorite book of human bondage. And Buffy says, oh, I'm not really into porn. I'm trying to cut way back. He tells her it's a novel. It's like his security blanket. He takes it everywhere. She mentions Mr. Pointy, but changes the subject when he wants to know what that is. A nice quick reminder that, yes, she is secret identity girl again. They exchange information about their different residence halls and say they'll look for each other in psych class. So it's the first time Buffy seems a little bit happy. Of course something bad is about to happen. At 20 minutes 36 seconds in Eddie turns down a path. A vampire grabs him. He is surrounded by other vamps, and the one we'll find out is Sunday. The leader of the group says I'm sorry did you lose your way? And we cut to a Commercial. If you are finding this podcast helpful and you want to learn more about story structure or are looking for information about writing or publishing, you can check out the articles on writingasaSecondCareer.com. You can also find free story structure worksheets there or through the link in the show notes. When we come back, it's dark, the vamps swarm into a dorm room, they strip the bed, they steal a bunch of things, and they leave a handwritten note. The next day, Buffy looks around in psych class for Eddie and doesn't see him, So now we are at the midpoint of the episode. Here, typically, in a strong story, we see either a major commitment by the protagonist or the protagonist suffers a major reversal. Here, it is a reversal because Buffy goes to Eddie's room And what she sees at first makes her fear the same thing will happen to her. At 21 minutes, 36 seconds in, she sees Eddie's bed has been stripped. And there is a handwritten note where he says he just couldn't take it. The resident advisor tells Buffy, yeah, some kids just can't handle it. It happens every year. They lose a number of them early. He guesses it's the weak ones. Buffy is very troubled identifying with that, which is so unusual for Buffy to feel like she is weak, like she is in that group of people who can't handle things. But she opens a drawer and she sees of human bondage there and that makes her wonder because Eddie told her he doesn't go anywhere without it. In the next scene, the vampires are in a house with the windows darkened. This is where they live. The vampire leader, Sunday, makes fun of all the different freshmen's things that they've stolen. She goes through, uh, presumably, Eddie's CDs, criticizing the boring music. And she says, we have to kill some cooler people. One of her minions points out that Sunday's the one who said to go after the weak ones. Sunday makes fun of the minion, calling her fat, and then she goes back to complaining about freshmen and says, man, they're so predictable. Later on, one of the minions wants to eat, and Sunday goes into vamp face and says, we eat when I say we eat. And one says, well, why don't you let dead Eddie get your dinner? Because Eddie is lying on the floor, and Sunday responds... That's pretty much the plan. These couple scenes are the first time that we see the vampire antagonist. And while I have sort of gotten used to that the opening episode of a season doesn't show us our season big bad, so We know Sunday is not going to be the uber villain. I still wanted something more. She's very mundane. She just seems like a run-of-the-mill vampire. Yeah, she's this leader of this little group. But this is nothing like Spike or Drusilla, who we saw early in season two. And it falls uh, flat for me. And and maybe it's supposed to. At 23 minutes, 56 seconds in, we double down on this reversal. Another way of saying we escalate the tension. But in the college slash emotional plot, Not so much in the vampire plot because I don't feel like it makes that much difference at this point. Buffy goes to Giles' apartment. Olivia, a British woman, is in the kitchen. She thinks it's Giles who has walked in and says something to uh, Rupert. And she is wearing one of his shirts and no pants. Buffy awkwardly says the door was open. Giles does still live here, right? And Giles walks out from a first floor bedroom. And he's wearing this red robe. And Buffy looks really disturbed and asks if it's a bad time. He says no, introduces Olivia as an old friend, and Olivia says she couldn't pass through sunny California without looking up old Ripper. Buffy tells Giles she needs his help, but goes on, but this just looks like a bad time. Olivia leaves them alone, and Giles comments on how Buffy keeps saying that, and she says something like, well, it looks like a pretty bad time. Maybe someone had a little too much free time on his hands. Giles asks her, is he not supposed to have a private life? And Buffy says, no, because you're very, very old and it's gross. I love this because it so speaks to their relationship truly being this father-daughter, mentor-slayer relationship. And as I've commented in past seasons, these types of dialogue lines and the uh, emotional responses not just of Buffy but all the characters are what keeps uh, there from being or a big part of what keeps there from being any sort of edge of creepiness in Giles hanging around with these high schoolers. Also, with the robe, as in graduation day, costuming tells us a lot here. We have never seen Giles, even particularly casual, let alone in a robe. He was almost always in a suit, a tweed suit at that. We probably saw him in jeans at least once, but he still looked very formal and put together and professional, and here... He is in this sort of lounging robe. Buffy tells him about the missing student. She doesn't believe Eddie left school. The RA said kids disappear a lot. So it could be a gang of vampires. She says they need to gather the group. They need research and charts. Giles is not convinced. He doesn't necessarily doubt the vampire gang idea, but he says she hasn't described anything she can't do herself. And Buffy says something like, Remember when you used to be a watcher? And he reminds her that officially she no longer has a watcher. This also didn't ring true to me. It It, again, is what we need to happen. We need Buffy to be alone, to be uh, finding things different. Now she's in college. She's supposed to handle these things. I buy Giles encouraging her to handle it herself. But him not being her official watcher never stopped him before from being there for her. When he follows up and says, you know, I'll always be here if you need me, but she's going to have to take care of herself. She's out of school. He can't always be there to guide her. Feels a little more like what Giles might say, but I just think Giles would have found a better way to say this and to let her know that, yes, if it turns out it is something bigger. If she needs to gather the group, they'll do that. But instead, he he just kind of says, well, I can't always be there for you. He tries to walk it back a little. And she assures him it's OK. She's on it. And she leaves. Now we'll escalate that reversal more, kind of triple down on it, because Buffy is going to encounter the vampire leader Sunday. We're at 26 minutes, 57 seconds in, and Buffy sees Eddie and she follows him. And this is where I struggle with the episode, because I understand it is supposed to be Buffy dealing with what at first feels like a whole new world where everything is different. So the villain here, you could see it as college life as a whole, but I think it is really Buffy's internal perceptions about college, her own fears about college, about not being able to handle it is our villain but without the vampire the monster to kind of stand in for that villain to represent that villain there's a lack of momentum here and the fact that Buffy doesn't come face to face with our vampire until now we're nearly two-thirds through the story I feel like just robs it of a lot of its forward motion. So Buffy sees Eddie, it's night, she follows him, she tells him she's relieved because she was worried something bad happened to him, and then she says, And of course it has, because you're a vampire. They fight. She dusts him pretty easily. Sunday emerges and says something like, she heard the Slayer was coming. And whatever will she do? And her vampire minions join her. And Sunday introduces herself as Sunday, the one who's going to kill you. And Buffy says, you know, that threat gets funnier each time I hear it. So at first she reacts very Buffy-like, but she falters when Sunday tells her as they're fighting that Buffy had a lot of misconceptions about college, quote, like that anyone would be caught dead wearing that, close quote. Buffy looks down at her outfit. Sunday takes advantage of her inattention to slug her. This is very symbolic. Buffy's fashion sense has been something she took for granted. In our first three seasons, she grappled with not being popular the way she used to be, not being part of school in the same way. But no one questioned Buffy's fashion choices, well, other than Giles when he made that comment about or when he thought that comment about cat strapped to her feet. But none of Buffy's peers questioned her fashion sense, not even Cordelia. But now Sunday is attacking almost that last thing that maybe Buffy felt confident about. Sunday gets the better of the fight, injuring Buffy's arm very badly. Buffy cradles the arm, looks at the group of vampires, and runs. I do find this believable because remember in Faith, Hope, and Trick, she tells Faith the important thing is don't die. Sometimes running is the right thing to do so that you can survive to fight another day. Sunday looks after her and says freshman with a shake of her head. We're at 29 minutes, 44 seconds in. Buffy is sitting on her bed. It's dark. She's holding her arm and Kathy, the noisy sleeper, is in the other bed. The next day at school, Buffy sees Willow and Oz. They're in the sun talking with another friend and Buffy brushes her hair over her bruised face. This tells us a lot about how much uh, Sunday got the better of Buffy because rarely Do we see Buffy have bruises the next day? And we know she's embarrassed about it because she brushes her hair that way. And she doesn't feel like she can confide in Willow and? Oz, maybe because Giles rebuffed her, um, but also probably because Willow and Oz are so comfortable on campus, she doesn't want to admit that she couldn't handle this vamp who doesn't seem particularly like some sort of uber vamp. So this is where I think that yeah, it is purposeful that Sunday is kind of mundane. She's nothing special. We switch back to Sunday and her minions. They're joking about Buffy being upset about her outfit. Sunday says Buffy won't last the night. She's a done deal, and they are going to hit the tunnels. At 32 minutes in, Buffy goes home, seeking comfort. Joyce is surprised to see her so soon. Buffy tells her she doesn't have classes. She just thought she'd crash For a while, but she can't. Her bedroom is filled with packing crates from the gallery. Joyce reassures Buffy it's still her room. She didn't move anything. Buffy says, if it's my room, shouldn't I be able to fit in it? Downstairs in the kitchen, the phone rings, Buffy answers, and no one is there. Little more on that in spoilers. For the moment, though, it does add a little bit to the feeling that Buffy is isolated and alone. Even a phone call, no one is there. We are now approaching where I would expect in a strongly structured story to see the last major plot turn, usually around two-thirds or three-quarters through. It should grow out of the midpoint and spin the story in yet another new direction. And we sort of have that here. At 32 minutes, 31 seconds in, Buffy goes to her dorm room and sees her bed stripped and a handwritten note sitting on it. So this is apparently what the vampires meant by going to the tunnels. They use the tunnels underground and they can raid someone's room, uh, apparently even in the daytime. Buffy sinks down on her bed. So you could see this as the turn because now Buffy knows for sure she is a target the way That Eddie was. She is seen as one of those weak ones. It doesn't feel that much like a new direction though because Buffy already knew this was happening. She already suspected a gang of vampires and she already encountered them and felt overwhelmed by it. I think we will see a turn but it is uh, a bit later in this upcoming scene Buffy goes to the bronze it's 33 and a quarter minutes in and she thinks for a moment she sees Angel there I think it is a quick clip of David Boreanaz and then when he turns it is a different actor she realizes it's not him I thought this was just a glimpse of Angel for the fans but I think it is also foreshadowing so I will talk about that at the end Buffy is then thrilled when Xander appears. He comments on how she has the whole world in front of her, but she comes back to this dive. He tells her his car engine literally fell out during his cross-country trip, so he didn't get very far. He washed dishes in a ladies' nightclub. That is, until the night one of the male strippers got sick. And no power on this earth will get him to tell the rest of that story. Now he's living in his parents' basement and paying rent. He asks how college is, Buffy says it's good, and Xander says once more with even less feeling. She tries to tell him it's going well. She tells him about Willow and Oz, and Xander says, And you're sitting here alone at the bronze, looking like you just got diagnosed with cancer of the puppy. Buffy tells him there was this vampire that took her down, got the better of her, and she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't want to get the whole gang together, and it comes out that she is worried, what if she can't cut it? Slaying, college, everything. At first, I questioned, why doesn't Buffy go back? and get the gang together. After all, she didn't know for sure there was a gang of vampires when she talked to Giles. The stakes have gone up, despite what I said, because they are clearly targeting Buffy. And it is a scheme to get many students, because she has seen this with Eddie and with her. So now she knows this is this targeted plan. What she says to Xander, tells us why she doesn't do that, she feels like she ought to be able to handle this on her own. She is faltering not just because she is not with her friends, but because internally she's afraid. And Xander tells her that. He says it's all about fear. And he then goes into this uh, sort of pep talk about fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to anger. Wait, hold on. And he tries to go back, and it gets tangled up. And Buffy says, thanks for the is pep talk. I feel much more abstract now. But Xander responds, the point is, you're Buffy. And Buffy says, yeah, maybe in high school I was Buffy. And Sandra responds, and in college, you're what, Betty Louise? And Buffy says, yeah, maybe. And I think we've all had these moments, at least I have, where you're in a new world, maybe a new career or a promotion, or you're taking on some new project, and you make a mistake. You have a bad result. And before that new thing happened, you would have said, okay, I made a mistake. How do I deal with this? How do I fix this? And probably felt confident you could do it. But because you're in this new situation where you're having some doubts, it kicks into this fear that, oh, you are going to be revealed as not being able to handle it. It's part of that imposter syndrome. The fear that everyone's going to find out you can't really do what you're doing. All your inner doubts are going to turn out to be true. So it is very relatable. And I feel like it ought to work to see Buffy go through this, but I have never liked seeing Buffy go through this. And I don't know if it is that we don't have the momentum, we don't put Buffy in opposition to this vamp until late in the episode. If it's that, I don't quite buy Buffy being so overwhelmed by college Part of it probably is that Buffy has faced so many terrible foes, internal and external. There were tons of emotional issues for Buffy with Angel and with Faith, and yet she was able to handle it. We're at 34 minutes, 63 seconds in, and here is where I think we do see that last major plot turn a bit late, but it will spin the story in a new direction in that Buffy now has momentum and is moving forward in a positive way, where up to now she has mostly been reacting. (laughs) If the writing and plot elements I talk about in this podcast help you with your own writing, you might also find two of my audiobooks useful. Super Simple Story Structure, A Quick Guide to Plotting and Writing Your Novel by L.M. Lilly, and The One-Year Novelist, A Week-by-Week Guide to Writing Your Novel in One Year. This one is also narrated by me. You can get both books wherever you buy audiobooks. Also, you can ask at your public library. Many of them loan audiobooks and they can order a copy of either book for you or may already have it. You can also get both books, The One Year Novelist, and Super Simple Story Structure in ebook or workbook editions. Links are in the show notes. Xander tells Buffy he's been through dark times when he's scared and all alone, and he thinks, and here's exactly what he says he thinks, what would Buffy do? you're my hero. And Buffy looks happier and more confident than we've seen her the entire episode. And then we get uh, some humor because Xander says, okay, sometimes when it's dark and I'm all alone, I think, what is Buffy wearing? And Buffy says, that'd be one of those things you never ever tell me about. And he says, it's a deal. And then at 38 minutes, 31 seconds in, Xander says, let's put this bitch in the ground. What do you say? And Buffy says, I think I say thank you. So I see that as the real turn. Now they will work together to defeat these vampires and Buffy has her confidence back because once again, she is part of a community and also because Xander reminded her that she is a hero and she can handle things. I like that Xander gets to be the one who connects with Buffy. And I feel like it's because Xander is an outsider, which is very much how Buffy feels. He's not in the middle of the college campus. His life is different. And before Willow and Buffy connected, Willow was outside of high school life. She was sort of an outcast. And here in college, she fits in so much better than Buffy. And I don't think Buffy's not happy for Willow about that, but it throws her off. She's not one of this band of outsiders or the leader of the band of outsiders anymore. Xander and Buffy go to a computer lab uh, somewhere in the college, they break in, and together they figure out this pattern of students disappearing and that there is a long history of it since the time a particular fraternity house became empty because the fraternity was banned. As always in Buffy, nothing good comes out of fraternities. They guess that the vampires are there. Xander says they should do some reconnaissance. And Buffy says something like, where we all paint and sculpt and stuff. And he tells her that's the Renaissance. And Buffy says, oh, I've had a really long week. At the house, they're on the roof. They look down through a skylight at the vampires. Sunday is making fun of Buffy's clothes, of Mr. Gordo, her stuffed pig, which I love the little callback to Mr. Gordo, and her diary. Buffy is uh, really upset. Xander goes off to get weapons and gather the troops since there are a number of vampires down there and Buffy says she'll stay and watch. But as she's monologuing to herself about how this time it'll be her rules, the glass breaks and she falls through and lands in the middle of the group of vampires and we cut to a commercial a good example of something key happening that puts the hero in great peril right before we end the scene. So in a book, this would be a great chapter ending. And that reader who was about to put the book down at the end of the chapter keeps reading. When we come back Sunday, once again, sarcastic. Says she's stumped. What a diabolical plan for Buffy to literally fall at their feet with a broken arm. What will they do? Buffy says, nice setup they've got here, but they made one mistake. When Sunday asks what, Buffy says, well, I'm not actually positive, but statistically, people usually make at least one mistake. Sunday punches her. Despite this punch that knocks Buffy down, there is a small shift here. While Buffy is not quite in top form with her quips, she is a bit uneasy at falling in. Uh, She is joking and she does seem more at ease than we've seen her earlier and certainly has more confidence than when she faced Sunday before. At the dorm, Willow sees the note on Buffy's stripped bed. She says Buffy wouldn't just run off except that one time she did. The roommate Kathy is there. She is worried, asks Oz and Willow, is Buffy not stable? Because she was very specific in her request for a stable non-smoker as a roommate. Willow feels distraught. She ought to have seen the signs. She was so wrapped up in her own life. She and Oz are bad friends. Oz, though, doesn't think the note is in Buffy's handwriting. And I so love that Oz sees that. It is a great example, too, of the differences of his and Willow's characters because Oz generally is the most even-tempered person we see on the show when he's not a werewolf. It also... Highlights the different uh, emotional places Oz and Willow are in because of the difference in how connected they are to Buffy. Oz doesn't feel as guilty. Yeah, it's not in his nature, but also he's not as close with Buffy. He hasn't been her friend as long. So he doesn't immediately leap to feeling bad that he missed the signs where Willow is thinking she let her best friend down. And she says to Oz, How can you be so close? calm and he says arduous hours of practice something I'll come back to in the spoiler section Xander arrives he hugs Willow then he hugs Kathy and in the midst of the hug says I don't know you do I she says no and Xander follows up with this is very intrusive isn't it and Kathy says a little bit they let go he and Oz agree they are too manly to hug Because Kathy's there, Xander talks in code, tells them Buffy's friends, who sleep all day and have no tans, played a prank on her. They took her stuff, and Buffy needs help to get it back. In the hall, he tells Oz and Willow they have some time. Buffy's in a holding pattern. So now we are at our climax where the opposing forces have their final clash and the conflict resolves. And it is a little heightened because we don't expect Buffy's friends to get there in time to help. Buffy here is going to overcome both Sunday and her own inner doubts and fears. The two fight. Sunday is getting the better of Buffy again, but she grabs the golden parasol. She is still making fun of Buffy's things, and she is... Picks up the Class Protector award, and Buffy warns her not to touch that. Sunday breaks the parasol's stem, then she grabs Buffy by the arm. We hear a snap as Buffy yells, and Sunday says, This arm's not looking so good. It might have to come off. But Buffy responds, You want to know the truth? I only need one. She headbutts her, the momentum shifts, and the minions start looking worried. That class protector award, both the memory gave Buffy more strength and confidence, and Sunday breaking it made her angrier. And Buffy says to Sunday, when you look back at this, in the three seconds it'll take you to turn to dust, I think you'll find your mistake was touching my stuff. And Sunday says, what about breaking your arm? The others have arrived. Uh, One of them stakes one of the minions there is more fighting with Buffy in Sunday, and Buffy says, and for the record, the arms hurt. It's not broken. She slugs Sunday, who goes flying across the room. Oz says, hey, Buff, need a hand? Buffy says, no thanks. She twirls her stake, turns, flings it at Sunday, and stakes her from several feet away. And that is the end of our climax She has prevailed over both Sunday and her inner doubts and fears. We are now at 42 minutes in. This is the falling action section of the episode where we tie up loose ends and resolve any subplots. So we do have a Giles subplot left to resolve. The group is leaving the frat house with Buffy's things and boxes. Xander asks, what about that other stuff? No one really owns it, right? He has dibs on the rowing machine. Giles runs to meet them. He has all these weapons, and he says he feels terrible. He knows he's supposed to teach Buffy self-reliance, but he can't let her fight alone. He's ready to back her up. They'll find the evil and fight it together. Buffy tells him they'll get right on that, and Willow hands him a box. Xander says, so, college, not so scary after all. And Buffy says, it's turning out to be a lot like high school, which I can handle. At least I know what to expect. But she doesn't because we get a game changer here at the end. So a cliffhanger is what we had when Buffy dropped into the room and surrounded by vampires, and we cut to a commercial. A little bit of a cliffhanger to keep us coming back after the commercial. And if it's at the end of the episode, you are drawing your viewer or reader back to find out how it resolves, although you might also be pissing them off, and they might not come back. Here though is a game changer which is something at the end that happens that changes the world. So our main plot has resolved but there is this new thing. And here, one of the vampire minions got away. He's running. He's in a wooded area. There's some twigs crackling and a shot from some sort of weapon that shoots electricity. And it knocks him to the ground, though his eyes are open. These guys in camouflage and black masks stealthily approach and surround him with weapons. And that's the end. So we don't know what the deal is with these guys. It does presumably change the game a bit. And it is a story question to leave us wondering. There was no commentary on the DVD for this. I do have a little bit of background on the book of Human Bondage. But that fits more in the spoiler and foreshadowing section. I do have a lot there I'm surprised how this is an episode that I still don't love. And yet there was so much interesting here to talk about from a story perspective. And it does a ton to foreshadow the season. So I hope you will stick around for spoilers and foreshadowing. If not, thank you so much for listening. I hope you will come back next Monday for Living Conditions, where Buffy's roommate, Perky Kathy, interferes with Buffy's slaying and her life. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. I had to look up Of Human Bondage. I never read the novel, but it seemed to me it couldn't be accidental that this book was chosen. The Buffy writers are always going to make use of a prop, of a concept. Um, If you're going to have something that Eddie talks about and remembers, it's going to matter. So I learned on Wikipedia that this was a book by Somerset Maugham and that he borrowed the title from the philosopher Spinoza, part four of his ethics, which is titled Of Human Bondage or the Strength of the Emotions. And according to Wikipedia, Spinoza in it discusses people's inability to control their emotions, which thus constitutes bondage. So that obviously fits our theme of the episode that Buffy's fear and self-doubt is undermining her. But the reason I'm talking about it here in the foreshadowing section is um, he also defines Good and bad categories based on people's general beliefs, connecting it with their emotions of pleasure and pain. So this, along with that mention between Willow and Riley of operant conditioning being Professor Walsh's specialty, all of this foreshadows what we will see with the initiative which is using pain to try to control vampires and demons. And I think it's no accident that we get that first look at the initiative, those camouflage guys capturing a vampire in this same episode. So there is a lot here telling us what is to come. And we will have an exploration of good and evil. Riley himself will struggle with that. He is a key person in the initiative. He always believes in its mission until Professor Walsh, another foreshadowing, her evil bitch monster of death, until she tries to kill Buffy. And until he learns about her creation, Adam, this Frankenstein-like creature who is improperly programmed, going to conditioning again, and goes out on a killing spree, there will be all these questions about good and evil. Buffy will have them as well. As to the initiative, Riley himself, Spike, there are some questions. Is Spike less evil when he is no longer able to hurt people? Because of this chip in his head that causes him pain when he tries to hurt a human, something the initiative installed. And Maggie Walsh is the head of this program. It's operant conditioning. So all of this relates. And I I wonder, as I go through these foreshadowings, if part of the issue with this episode is it doesn't stand that well by itself. It is almost like a first chapter in this season foreshadowing all these things hinting at all these things but the story at the heart of this chapter or episode itself to me is not that strong quick thing on Giles this bedroom on the first floor we know Giles bedroom is upstairs and we will see it later in another episode that he sleeps up there Yet when Olivia visits in this episode and in Hush, for whatever reason, they are in the downstairs bedroom. This could be emotional. Maybe Giles, Jenny died in the bed upstairs. Maybe he cannot bear to be with anyone else there either because of how he feels about Jenny or because he feels like it's sort of a bad omen. It might just be a more practical thing. It is scarier in Hush when Olivia looks out the window and sees the gentleman right there. Uh, It's scarier to be on the ground floor. Buffy seeing that glimpse, she thinks of Angel at the bronze. I'll talk about this more in the Parker Abrams episodes, which there are way too many of, in my opinion. She has such a hard time getting over Parker. And I've mentioned this in other spoiler sections. I finally think as I'm looking at this Buffy as a whole that it is not at all about Parker. It's about Angel. The fact that Angel left at the end of season three, she understands why intellectually but emotionally this is really hard for her. So that flash of seeing Angel, she is still looking for Angel. He is part of what is missing. That phone ringing, if you watch Angel, so hey, spoilers about Angel here too. The first episode of Angel, we will see him dial the phone. We'll hear Buffy answer, and he hangs up. So he is missing her. And this was something you could do back in the day when there was no caller ID. That call to just hear that person's voice. And I will be covering the first episode of Angel as a Patreon bonus, I'll cover other Angel episodes where Buffy crosses over in, uh, in this regular Buffy in the Art of Story podcast stream, where it feels to me like you need it for the continuity of Buffy. Really don't need that first episode of Angel for it, but I will do it as a Patreon bonus. If you would like to become a patron, you can follow the link in the show notes or uh, go to lisalily.com slash Patreon. I just set that up. I realized other than in Graduation Day Part 2, I have been giving the wrong link for Patreon. So way to make it hard for you. So now it is there, lisalily.com slash Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to all the bonus episodes. Willow saying Giles is enjoying being a gentleman of leisure. Buffy's joke about that being British for unemployed and her comments on too much time on his hands will be a major conflict for Giles through season four. What to do with himself. He's not the librarian. He's not officially her watcher. And that's probably why we get Giles making that comment think it's an example and I am guilty of it. Sometimes I look particularly at first chapters in books and there are things that if I look at it two years later I realize I was working something in because I thought I needed it to give a little backstory or establish the character or foreshadow but it doesn't quite belong there and I should have just left it to develop organically later. I feel like there may be a little of that here with things being worked in for that reason like Giles' comment of officially you no longer have a watcher. Very sad foreshadowing when in the bookstore Buffy comments on the price of the books and and what her mom's going to think and says, I hope it's a funny aneurysm. So sad because that's basically how Joyce is going to die. The fact that intro to psych books hit Riley on the head, it is so symbolic. Professor Walsh, her operant conditioning, the initiative, all of that is going to... Turn Riley's life upside down. So I think this is very metaphorical that these are the books that hit Riley on the head and pretty hard too. Kathy, of course, saying she's not always this hyper and the whole year will be super fun and being passive aggressive, all of that. Also, her snoring and laughing in her sleep. Tons of foreshadowing there for the next episode when Buffy has so much trouble living with her. These lines when Willow says, how can you be so calm? And Oz says, arduous hours of practice. Foreshadows wild at heart when Oz recognizes he can't control the wolf, but the wolf is always inside him. And new moon rising even more so because he comes back and there have been even more arduous hours of practice. Or I shouldn't say even more. I think Oz is making a joke here, but it turns out he needs that to be able to keep his emotions calm, and he thinks he can control the wolf that way, and it turns out he can't. When he experiences that anger or jealousy over Willow and Tara, the wolf comes out and he can't stop it. Yet another link to that idea from Of Human Bondage, the Spinoza chapter where he talks about being unable to control emotions creating a form of bondage and another link to the operant conditioning idea because we will see the initiative inject as or they call it some kind of negative stimulus and he turns into the wolf. That is it for the foreshadowing and for this episode. Thank you once again for listening. And thank you especially to patrons who support the show. I hope you will all come back next Monday for Living Conditions when Buffy and her roommate clash. If you're enjoying Buffy and the Art of Story, please write a review, share it on social media, or tell a friend. You can find my fiction and back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com. You can also listen to the podcast episodes on YouTube. So check out lisalilly.com slash YouTube. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman LLC. Copyright 2021.